Let's start by welcoming Cindy Padnos, welcoming back Cindy Padnos to One Million by One Million. She's the founder and managing director of Illuminate Ventures and one of the early activists of the female investor in Silicon Valley movement. Today we have a lot more, but she's one of the earlier ones and uh, we've had her before here and uh, she's been doing a lot of work in this area for a long time. Welcome, Cindy. Great to see you back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So let's catch up. It's been a while. How has your COVID been? Well, uh, you know, of course, there's not a whole lot that you can say that's positive about COVID other than it's actually benefited a few of our portfolio companies in, in ways one could never anticipate. Uh, and others have had some hardship because of it, um, either, uh, you know, buildings closing down and so sales teams aren't working in offices anymore and um, things like that have had some impact. Um, obviously, we're all looking forward to, uh, you know, the world, not just our community, but, but the world opening back up. It'll be, uh, I, I think, much better appreciated, all of the things that we can do and all of the things we can enjoy uh, in the future. So let's start with the positives. You said you have had portfolio companies who have benefited from COVID, and we've heard this from many investors that there are certain categories where companies have done well in even in COVID times. Let's take a couple of case studies and discuss them. Why, what is it that they're doing and how, how has COVID benefited them positively? Well, probably the most obvious one is Coupon, which is uh, the e-commerce giant of uh, South Korea. And as yeah. you can imagine, in the world um, where, you know, shops are closed and, and people don't want to go out or can't go out, um, e-commerce picks up pretty dramatically. Um, the, the credit that I'll give to Coupon is that they were prepared. They were ready to be able to take, um, you know, full advantage of the opportunity that opened up in front of them, which meant they had to have all of the logistics systems in place. They had to hire many more drivers for delivery. They do all their own deliveries. They don't rely on third parties the way Amazon and others do here in the U.S. Um, and they also had to put in place amazing um, policies and processes around how to keep employees healthy in the workplace because we're talking about warehouse workers, you know, picking all right. of the, the, uh, um, the items for their people that, you know, are ordering these online. And then they took the next step and they um, initiated something they call instant delivery. And what is instant delivery? It means that literally you can go online, order a product up until midnight, and by 7 a.m. the next morning, it's on your doorstep. That's just incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the logistics of doing that are, are extreme. Uh, you know, so they just went public a few weeks ago, um, had an extraordinary yeah. IPO. And um, <clears throat> what I'm probably most proud of there is uh, two things. One, uh, the reason we're investors in that company, we don't normally uh, invest outside of North America, is that um, a company that we were investors in merged with them about six years ago. And our team, our CEO and his co-founder and two of the other members all picked up and moved to Korea. Um, our CEO became the CTO of all of Coupon. His um, co-founder became head of all products there. And um, mm -hmm. they really, <clears throat> excuse me, they really helped them make the transition 
from what they were then, which was really more like the Groupon of South Korea, um, to become mm -hmm. the Amazon of South Korea. And, and um, you know, the, without them, it would have been much more of a struggle without the talent that they brought and the, and the skills and the, the product that they brought with them when, when that tr uh, transaction happened. Very interesting. Were these, were, were they Americans or what ethnicity were uh, they to be able to pick up and move to South Korea? Yeah, you're, you're saying to yourself, would I do that? Uh, no, uh, one of the founders was um, Chinese. The other was Indian. Okay. And both of them, one born in India, the other born in China, but educated here in the U.S. and, and had built, you know, helped to build several companies here. The CEO had actually been the VP of engineering in the company I founded, um, which was mm -hmm. a very, very early SaaS software company. If you remember, it was a procurement software company. And he had gone on to have a couple of other successful exits. He had been um, chief product and operations officer at Demand Tech when they went public and then had left to start this company that was called Calm C, that was a predictive analytics engine for online and cross-channel retailers. And Coupon was okay. their largest customer um, at the time of the acquisition. Okay. Um, so that actually brings one question to my mind, which is uh, you generally invest more in the B2B sphere, right? Correct. So this, uh, the, so the company that you had invested in was a B2B company that went in, that got acquired by a B2C company. That's how you got into B2C. Correct. So you never know, right? You never know. You can't <laughs> predict these things. And, um, you know, and, but, but we've had other non-consumer companies that have benefited from COVID as well. We have a company up in um, Vancouver called Allocadia. Uh, it's a rather remarkable company in many ways that the founders had basically bootstrapped the company to over a million dollars in recurring revenue. Uh, yeah, we yeah. have been investors there for about five years now. Uh, they are a, a um, ROI management and um, attribution and marketing planning and budgeting platform that sits in between your ERP system and the plethora of marketing automation tools below that. So a CMO needs to be able to plan and budget. And you can imagine during COVID, every CMO got a message very quickly, cut your budget, cut it by 30%, cut it by 50%. They were massive cuts in marketing that had to be implemented very quickly. Uh, and this is a tool mm -hmm. that helps you to understand where your best next dollar is, should be allocated. And it helps every person on the marketing team um, with that planning and budgeting process as well. Uh, so that was, um, you know, the, the, the demand for that product increased pretty significantly and, and it won't go away because people now understand their budgeting and planning for things like marketing has to be much more agile, um, has to be yeah. almost real time. And historically, you know, it was set it and forget it. You, you set a marketing budget at the first of the year and, and things don't change that much. Now they change quite a lot and, and very frequently. Okay, so um, let's do a little bit of level setting on um, on the basics of how you're doing your fund right now. What size funds are you working on and what check sizes are you writing? What stage do you want to come in? You just mentioned that it was a company that already bootstrapped to a million dollars. So give us a bit of a, an idea about what, what are the, what is the investment thesis and the fund strategy right now? Yeah, so, so I would say most fundamentally, 
we are looking for companies that are further along than most. Um, so we do seed stage, series seed stage investing, meaning we're typically the first institutional round of investment in a company. We generally are writing a million dollar check, can be a little bit more, it can be a little bit less. And we're almost always syndicating that investment, meaning sharing it with other like-minded co-investors. So the round sizes are anywhere from, let's say, 2 million to 4 million in size, um, most typically. And um, we don't, we, we frequently lead or co-lead those rounds. Uh, from time to time, we'll go in when someone else is led, but that's a little bit more unusual. Uh, and in terms of the companies themselves that we're looking for, um, this concept of further along, uh, maybe it, it helps to just give some examples of, of what that could be. Um, we have done, for example, several companies that were spin outs from large corporations. Uh, one from SanDisk, the you know chip maker that was being acquired, the company was being acquired, and they said, we don't need these software products. I don't know why SanDisk you know, cared about these, but we don't, and spun out um, an intact team with a dozen optical engineers, IP, uh, a management team that had worked together for years. And um, that company now is a company called Jetstream that's a continuous data protection solution for hybrid cloud environments. They're the really the only solution in the Microsoft Azure AVS platform for managing disaster recovery, real-time disaster recovery for uh, VMware environments. So um, a deep tech company, uh, a really um, interesting team. And you know they were looking for spin-out capital, if you will. That, that's one example. We, uh, we've done several of those. Uh, other companies, not necessarily was the deep tech. Uh, what was interesting um, in one, it was a customer base where they were spinning out of a law firm with a legal tech platform and instantly would have a thousand customers that were already the clients of that law firm. Okay. Uh, we've done we've done companies that have entirely bootstrapped. Um, I don't know if you know Neha Sampat, but she's uh, got a remarkable company called Content Stack. Uh, it's in the digital experience management space, and we uh, led her seed round of financing um, that enabled them to go from uh, one million in recurring revenue that they had bootstrapped to um, to over four million in less than a year. Uh, and then uh, really with just a $2 million financing, they were able to do that, which is rather extraordinary. Um, that's an unusual yeah, company. Yeah. And uh, then Insight Partners came in and led a $30 million Series A in the company about a year later. So mm -hmm. um, she, had, she and her team had bootstrapped by having an IT services business um, and yeah. building the same, came to recognize they were building the same product over and over again. Uh, for customers around the globe and decided to productize that offering, spin it out, and they sold off their, uh, their software business um, to a company, you know, to Software AG, so to a large corporation, and put all the resources behind the productized company when we put our money in. So that's um, another so, interesting um, I want to underscore what you just said, which is basically a, a methodology that we have on our end, product size, which is bootstrapping using services. We do a lot of bootstrapping using services. We have case study after case study of bootstrapping using services. Sure. 
There are great companies out there that have done very well with bootstrapping using services, Oracle being probably the most known example, but one of my favorite examples is Alteric, which was bootstrapped with services, and I met their CEO, you know, in 2013, and I'm still, you know, in touch with him, and this is a company that was, you know, a textbook case study of bootstrapping using services. So I'm very happy to hear that as an investor, you acknowledge the importance of bootstrapping using services and, and how effective uh, it is to, to build companies like this. By the way, if you want to introduce this company to us, we'll be happy to do a story on them uh, for our Entrepreneur Journey series. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm sure Neha would be happy to. She's, uh, she's brilliant, by the way. And uh, she's also, on top of everything else, on top of being a great uh, entrepreneur and CEO, she's also... Uh, a level two sommelier. <laughs> so Ooh, if you're lucky, okay. she'll send you a nice bottle of wine beforehand. <laughs> um, so, so one thing I would say is that most VCs are not interested in companies that start out as services businesses. I just, I wanna, I wanna I be clear that. that the reality is that um, there are a lot of things that we're interested in that most VCs aren't. Um, you know, we're interested in companies that have used SBIR grants um, to get further along, meaning no dilution at all, just grants from the government. Um, yeah, and yeah. Or, you know, we also, by the way, um, recognize in a lot of these bootstrap companies, there may be family members involved. That's another thing most VCs, you know, literally most of my friends would say, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Um, and so, <laughs> literally, you know this. Um, so we've taken a contrarian approach, I guess is what I would say. And we understand the value that can be built without venture capital. But we then believe we have the resources and the know-how and the contacts, the network to help those companies then really accelerate when they're ready to. Great. And um, what about geography? What are you doing? Uh, are you doing only Silicon Valley or is it? No, we've always had a broader view than that as well. We've had companies in New York, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in um, Chicago. We've got two in Canada right now, um, Southern California. So we, we've always had a broader view. <laughs> Excuse me. And my partner, uh, Jennifer, is actually in Seattle. So we, you know, okay. we look pretty deeply into the Pacific Northwest as well. So, but all North America. One hundred percent North America. Yes. North America. Okay. And um, talk to me a bit about your approach to, um, you know, female founders. I know you have a different perspective than, you know, just supporting female founders. You actually. If I remember correctly, what your philosophy was that you you are not focusing on female founders only. You support, you fund any kind, any entrepreneur. That's correct. I'm, I know I've mentioned a couple here that were female, but coupon, there were no females there and uh, many others in our portfolio. What we've done um, is we've really tried to simply open the door wider. We've tried to avoid the pitfalls, I think, of many investors of um, having a little bit too much pattern recognition around what a typical uh, you know, entrepreneur should look like. We've built our advisory network, uh, which is an extraordinary group of people from the B2B world 
uh, more than half of those members are women. They just happen to be mm -hmm. some of the most successful enterprise tech people in the world. People who've had been founders of companies that have had billion dollar exits and the like. Um, and we have uh, also very specifically brought interns in. We, we have a class year internship program uh, that it's also intentionally diverse, meaning more than half of those students have been women, uh, but two thirds of them, well, no, but I think it's now three fourths of them come from diverse black backgrounds. Um, in our portfolio today, nearly half of our companies do have a woman co-founder, um, but mm -hmm. half don't. And, um, but three fourths of them have at least one co-founder who was born outside of North America, by the way. Mm -hmm. And um, we have multiple Latino founder CEOs. We have multiple gay founder CEOs. We have um, a level of diversity that we're really proud of, but we don't ever okay. use that as part of our investing criteria. Okay. Um, talk to me about what your analysis of the current market is going forward. What do you want to invest in? What trends are you trying to you know, get behind. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the most obvious areas of disruption over the last uh, year has been, uh, you know, the work environment. So the whole thing, the category that a lot of people are calling the future of work. Um, we go deeper than that, uh, much deeper than that. And we do each year um, what we call sector assessments across about a 12 or so different categories that we're interested in. They're not always technology. Um, so we care about things like changes in business models where one of our companies, for example, uh, PEX is doing a revenue share model. Um, so they're not all SaaS software companies any longer. Um, we also care a lot about um, the, the, the use cases that these companies are targeting. Um, and so that can shift pretty rapidly when suddenly a company says, well, I can serve not only white collar workers, but blue collar industrial workers as well, um, or I'm going to focus there exclusively. So those are, those are areas we're interested in. Um, we're, we're very well aware of the need for better uh, compliance around regulatory issues, but also just the whole concept of um, more transparency. Uh, people are looking for it in every way you can imagine, including, you know, the, the category that people are now calling understandable AI. Um, yeah. or, and, and, and we're looking at a company right now that, by the way, the company started in Turkey, um, but now has its headquarters, you know, it's a Delaware C corporation today, but will always have a, a large portion of their, you know, employee base in, in Turkey, I'm sure. Um, so it's, it's really um, a variety of different areas. We're, we're looking at things that, that impact the blue-collar workforce. We're looking at um, technologies in the low-code area uh, and certainly business applications that are going to enable omni-channel delivery of content like Content Stack does and, and other things like that. Uh, one of the areas that I'm watching very closely, and I don't know if you've read some of my writings, I've been writing about this for, for at least a year or more, um, more in recent times, platform as a service. I have had lots of conversation with lots of companies that are 
either already doing platform as a service strategies or are trying to do platform as a service strategies. Um, so this is basically the classic Salesforce.com model where they started with a SaaS application, CRM, and then open up their platform for developers to build other applications around, and then they created the app exchange marketplace to sell through. This is a model that is being replicated by several players. Atlassian has done a nice job of it. Um, ServiceNow is doing the same thing. ServiceNow is doing it, but ServiceNow is not. I've had extensive conversations actually with ServiceNow. ServiceNow is not really emphasizing the startup ISV world as their developer base. They are opening up as a path, but they want the large companies to build on it and the IT departments of large companies and the system integrators to build on it. Like the that's right. It's, of it's, the a, world. it's a different twist. That's right. Yeah. So the, so the gentleman who ran that used to run the app exchange and, and is one of our, as a member of our advisory board, he's left there and gone to Google to do the same thing at Google. So it'll be interesting to see. What that looks like. Avanish? Avanish yes, of course. Yeah, Avanish. I know Avanish very well. Unfortunately, Google is doing exactly the same thing. Google is also yeah. going after the large workloads and, and not doing the fast strategy that Avanish was hoping they were going to do. It's not, it's not surprising, is it? Well, that's who they should go after. I, I, you know, if you're Google, that makes sense. Right, but, uh, but I think from our point of view, from people who work in the startup ecosystem point of view, I think what is not Google therefore is not as relevant to us for as, for example, um, a digital ocean is really focused on startups. They have 5 million developers out of which 30 to 40,000 of their developer network is small ISVs. And, and that's, that's a company that is really nurturing the developer ecosystems around ISVs and startups. Uh, Snowflake has about 45,000 developers, and I think they're, they have at least 1,000, if not maybe 3,000 startups. Okay. ISV. And then, uh, obviously, Roblox is another example, right? Roblox is, is a perfect example in, in a different category, but it's, it's the yes. same example. And uh, then there's all sorts of interesting groups like Pegasystems and, and others that are doing, they're, they're different variations of, the, of that concept as well. Right. So, so my question to you is, are you, I, I guess two questions. One is, are you seeing companies built on other people's stacks, like a Viva that came on top of Salesforce.com and really bootstrapped the company? Viva was built with such a capital efficient model, it's mind-boggling. I'm a huge fan of Peter Gassner. But, um, so that's one. And then the second thing is, what about companies that are actually thinking fast right away, where maybe they're going to market to begin with with an app, with a SaaS app, but then they're thinking that they will go to pass right from the beginning strategically. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't see too many people doing that. I think what, um, what, what some of these other large corporations have as an advantage is that the, the kind of solution, the platform you're describing tends to be easier to build if you already have an existing customer base to attract people. So if you think about Salesforce, um, you know, I was an investor for 10 years and exactly, I sat on their board and um, yeah. they did build a version of their product on um, that stack. And then 
frankly had to replace it because it just didn't have the flexibility that they needed. But um, they were always part of the app exchange anyway. Why? Because, and, and obviously tightly integrated with Salesforce. Why? Because of that customer base that that would attract sure, to sure. them, right? So, and the same thing you think of ServiceNow. Similarly, they have a very large customer base. Google has a very large customer base. But um, that they could use that way. They're not, but they could. Uh, so I, I, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg issue. If, if you look at Roblox, that was not an overnight success. That was also a very long time building that company. Uh, and it's only in recent years that people have recognized the real value of that business. Um, literally, yeah, probably yeah. only within the last three or four years. Um, but it, you know, it's been around for at least 10 years. So, yeah. it, but I, I think I, I would, I would, uh, I would say that the awareness about SaaS and uh, the interest in building SaaS strategies is, is rising. Uh, people are using APIs to build their developer ecosystems. Like if you look at Zendesk, for instance, or HubSpot. Uh, actually, Avanish is on the board of HubSpot. That's um, right. Shopify. Uh, many of them are doing API strategies and trying to bring together a lot of, you know, developers around their API and by giving access to your points by giving access to their customer base to these developers. So right. there's I mean, a lot I mean, more going on. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's another trend. Um, I think it's an interesting one. But but again, I think if you look at it and say HubSpot, wow, fantastic customer base that they've built that now yes, these developers yes. have access to. So it's, it's again, I think there's a little bit of a chicken and egg. You know, which one do you do first? <laughs> yeah, in yeah. some cases, it's the customer base. In some cases, it also could be unique technology, right? In Snowflake's case, I think, you know, a lot of the AI companies, AI startups need a data lake to build on top of, and that's the thing. They're that's benefiting true. from the fact that they have a unique technology, which people need. They, you can't really build that kind of a data lake as a startup and get have any chance of getting anywhere without somebody else's technology, and they're, they're well-positioned, and several others, MongoDB and so forth, are playing that game. Yeah. All right, very yeah. good. Um, any other thoughts before we uh, switch? No, I think it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, if, if I was Always not a great time to be an entrepreneur. Well, I think some times are better than others. And I think this is, you know, I, we invested in Bright Edge and Exactly and some others during a financial downturn. And those are yeah. some of the most successful companies in our portfolio. The founders understood the value of a dollar, but more than anything, um, they really fine-tuned their, their product and their message um, with a group of customers who were unbelievably loyal because they delivered something they really needed at a time when everyone was going through difficult times. And, you know, customer appreciation is real. It doesn't go away overnight. And um, so I think if you have the opportunity to build some of those relationships today, they can be meaningful for the next 10 years. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Sydney, uh, Cindy, for See coming you. back. And uh, we will keep in touch. Absolutely. Bye-bye.